0: thanks for listening into the trusty tech talks products podcast episode one um so we're joined by tom hoyland who is the agile devops delivery lead at sky betting and gaming who throughout his career has built up coached and led multiple delivery teams across product devops and agile delivery turning them into high performing teams So Tom recently joined us on an exclusive roundtable event with multiple CTOs, Head of Technology across the Northwest. As you can imagine, that many senior people in one place, we didn't manage to get through all the questions. So this podcast aims to build on the ideas, the challenges and the solutions raised there so that we can actually hopefully share some valuable insights across the delivery space to you all. So, welcome back, Tom. Thanks for freeing yourself up a little bit more.
1: (laughs) Hi, (laughs) Ree. How are you doing?
0: (laughs) Probably just might as well bond.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it's okay. Uh, Been a busy couple of weeks, but uh, yeah, happy to be back talking to you folks again
0: good good um so i guess for everyone listening um it might be worth just to give a quick summary of the presentation and the key points of how you built up high performing teams that you ran through on friday
1: yeah absolutely so the other week i Delivered a bit of a talk and a presentation to to you folks, and uh, we were looking at what do we think makes up a high-performing Agile team or a high-performing team, and I talked about a number of key themes, and the first one was really being data-driven but people-led. So if we want to build high-performing teams, it's really important that we have the data to support our decisions. Those teams need to be observable. We need to be able to understand how they are interacting, but also how they're outputting work, what outcomes are they trying to achieve. Uh, And that data is really helpful because it points us in the right direction, but data on its own is not enough because if we want to build a high-performing team, it needs people. And any kind of change, any kind of improvement has to be people-led because they set the direction And if we want to embed change, it's all about building that environment of psychological safety. And it's very much people led. Another thing that I talked about was the concept of understanding when to coach teams and when not to coach teams and being really cognizant of where they are on their journey. Some agile coaches, some consultants, sometimes they will automatically jump to a coaching role and a coaching stance, but it's really important that when you work with a team, you understand where they are on their journey together. Some teams may be more receptive to teaching and training. Some may be looking for that coach to help them seek deeper insights, but then some teams may be just looking for an advisor to bounce ideas off uh, just to confirm and validate their theories and ideas. So it's really important that teams and coaches understand what stances they're taking when they're building those high-performing teams. Another one of the key things that I did talk about, and I, uh, I dropped an update out on LinkedIn about this, it was about what we consider the pipeline to be. So when we take a concept and turn it into reality, it's not just our CI/CD pipeline that we're using to move code through and into the hands of users in the ultimate product that we create. It's about people as well your pipeline isn't just your technology it's your people your process your constraints the environment that you work in the expertise and the experience of all of those people all of these things together become your pipeline and really high performing teams pay attention to that pipeline and exercise it and optimize it at all times so they can get to this state this constant state of readiness which is really important and When we talked about what we thought a high performing team was, and my definition of a high performing team is very particular to me, but I always feel that a really high performing agile team or any team for that matter, is one that is stable, it can deliver things in a consistent way, but it's not afraid to start to sprint to move faster and to move at pace, but how they deliver things is is done in a sustainable way that doesn't deplete that team. So they're always ready for that next challenge or that next task. And finally, touching on that, that subject that I mentioned before, that constant state of readiness, really high-performing teams are in that state of readiness. They've got a low amount of work in process. The work is chopped up into smaller bits. We're working on delivering things in minimum viable product stances, minimum testable product stances, and ultimately marketable products. But that team is breaking work down into a smaller, meaningful chunk. That they can exercise through that pipeline much more quickly and at the same time there's not just a low amount of work in process but we've actually got an element of slack in our pipeline so if we do identify opportunities for improvement we want to jump on the next innovation that team is in that state of readiness where they can pull work in when they're ready for it
0: yeah (laughs) no, nope. <laughs> I thought he was going to say something else. Um, no, 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 that's okay. Uh, and just for people listening, when uh, Tom delivered this presentation, I've never seen so many heads of uh, heads of a CTO scribbling and writing down as if it was back in <laughs> just trying to take all these notes. Um, so yeah, so it, it's interesting because obviously in the northwest, I think it's safe to say a lot of t- lot of companies are still growing. They're still embedding agile they're still on a journey at the moment so um, one of the questions that was actually put to us was in your opinion at what point do you then consider a team is high performing
1: Uh, that's a that's a very good question and it's also a bit of a divisive one because uh, it's all in the eye of the beholder I think you've got to in order to understand whether a team is high performing you've got to be able to understand that team and there are teams that claim to be high-performing and they are delivering things in a consistent way, but it's very mechanistic. They're following the rule book. There's no, there's no harm there. But we're not asking the important questions. Is what we're delivering right now the most important thing? Is it going to have the biggest bang for our buck? And I think really high-performing teams are not afraid to answer, ask those questions and to seek those answers of their product owners and product managers get closer to the user needs that they're trying to address and really understand how their product is going to have an impact. I think the teams that are able to ask those questions, have the right environment to ask those questions are the really high performing ones. It may well be that they're not at the end of their journey. They're right at the beginning of their journey, but being a high performing team is a state that you have to be in and you have to constantly renew that and to maintain that. Now, some teams that I've, I've seen are those really high-performing teams and they don't look like they have any structure from the outside. It looks, a bit, uh, it looks a bit freeform and sometimes it can look like chaos from the outside. But when you're on the inside of that team and you understand how it works and how the work flows and how interactions take place, it's pretty magical. And I think that's what a really high-performing team is. It's a team that is able to achieve its goals and objectives uh, in such a fluid way that it looks almost natural for the outside. It may look like chaos. It may look a bit chaotic, but actually within there, there's a deep sense of discipline and purpose and shared purpose with that team.
0: Yeah, definitely. And uh, I think uh, it's interesting because I think um, the people that attended on Friday, thought they had a sense of that and then I think one of them in particular um actually then scrapped everything and said no we need to start again wow (laughs) Um, and from that side so it's, it's interesting how different people again have different um definitions and examples of what they class as high performing I guess it probably comes down to what's right for your organisation um, and what you feel is best for the team. Um, and if it's performing fluidly, I'm getting that impression that then that's what would be a high-performing team.
1: Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think high perfor- calling a team a high-performing team is really easy within an organisation because that status of high-performing is just relevant or relative to the other teams that are around it those teams may behave in a different way. They may have different behaviors, different rules, different values, and they can have quite a stark contrast to the teams around them. They may be totally outperforming them in the way they communicate, the impact that they have, but that is local to that organization. Now, when you then take that team out, let's say we picked up that team and we moved it to a different organization, that may be, in contrast, not a high-performing team. It's very much relative to the organization that is surrounding that team so it's really important that when you look across uh, when you look across the sea and you look at another organization and how they work when you when you engage with them you don't try to always impose a previous idea of what a high performing team is because high performance is very uh, i would say it's very specific to each organization it changes based on where you are and uh, yeah it is very relative to the site in which it's located
0: yeah. And I guess it wouldn't be 2020 without mentioning the dreaded C word. Um, but uh, a, a few people have asked, um, obviously with COVID uh, at the moment, is it still possible to be a high performing team in the current environment?
1: Uh, I... I do have some some direct experience of this recently. I know uh, just before uh, the UK obviously went into lockdown and we started to see whole swathes of people starting to work remotely. Uh, I was working with uh, my current team at Sky Betting and Gaming. Uh, We're a platform team. Uh, We focus on reliability, engineering, availability, tooling, and really uh, innovating the underlying platforms that we have. And one of the things that we started to do well before uh, we had any idea of a global pandemic uh, coming on the news, was we started to make all of our things that we did that were implicit, explicit. We started to codify our ways of working. We started to test ourselves, so doing, testing remote working before any of this had even uh, appeared on the news. And what that helped us to do is that helped us to exercise our team and exercise our people pipeline It made us more robust, it enabled us to get to grips with technology in lots of different contexts and lots of different scenarios, testing people working remotely, testing people working from home, and it enabled us to test all the different technologies. What it also did was it it also gave us an opportunity to really reflect on how we were working and, and refresh our ways of working, which was really useful now fast forward fast forward a couple of months uh when the when the pandemic uh you know landed in the UK and we started to move to work remotely i was absolutely bowled over with how effectively we rolled from working in an office on site really deeply collaborating to working remotely it happened almost over a weekend and uh, and i was really impressed with how the team and the squad that i was working with they were just they just never missed a beat we just rolled over from working on the same site to working from home nothing changed the only thing that had changed was making all of our approaches our policies our processes our ways of working more explicit and those investments really served us really well and i would say that as we've continued to work remotely we've almost fine-tuned that art we've still got a long way to go. We've got ideas and opportunities, of, opportunities for improvement. And the team is absolutely brilliant at identifying that on, an, on a regular basis and investing that in the work that we do. Uh, but uh, I would say that you can be a high-performing team uh, in the age of COVID. I think you, with remote working and, and the, the constraints that are being put on organizations, I think if you invest in the right way, in the right behaviors, the right tooling, and you're willing to make that time investment, you can have a really positive outcome, and teams can continue to be high performing.
0: Yeah, I guess obviously Skype in you know they're a well-known company, a lot of money invested, uh, you know probably very far in the in how technological they are as a business and environment. I guess I I've been speaking to a lot of. Um, a lot of clients recently where it's probably not as easy. He um, probably had the opposite mindset thinking, "Oh, know, we wouldn't, to be fair, I was probably one of them. I never in a million years thought we'd ended up in a full country lockdown. Um, so I guess for those companies who had to pretty much do it overnight with no planning, didn't even give it a second thought, which I think most of us can admit we probably did, what would you be your best advice for a company in that situation and how to motivate and drive their teams. Uh,
1: I I think, I think, I think that the first thing you have to put in place is you have to put the framework in place. And when I'm talking about frameworks, I'm not talking about DevOps or safe or scrum or any of those things. I'm talking about the basics of technology, uh, creating the fabric by which you can communicate remotely. Like we're talking now over zoom. Uh, roll back a couple of years, and getting a person from one organization talking to another person over a video conferencing call would be a pretty difficult task to ask of any organization. Yeah. Nowadays, what uh, what the age of lockdown has done is it's almost forced things to the surface, enable and encouraged organizations to focus on what is the basic fabric for doing business in the digital age and then deliver those things. It's effectively prioritization. We've been given a constraint. Everybody work from home very quickly at short notice. And then what that has naturally done, that natural constraint has brought all of the most important things, the most valuable things to the surface. And then we've started to work down them So looking at organizations that may feel that they weren't as well equipped to deal with this as maybe others that are more uh, fortunate or in a different space. I think what this has done is it's forced people to really look closely at what they need to do their business online. It's driven those things to the top of the list. And then they've been working the way down that list. So putting the basics in place, looking at hygiene factors when working remotely. Once we've done that, how do we then start to move towards that high performing team state? How do we move away from embedding those technologies, providing training, and then moving away from that towards more coaching and then advising to get to that mindset?
0: Yeah, because I think a lot of the conversation has been about, you know, how to keep teams motivated, uh, keeping up performance. Um, It's interesting because I think I think most will agree that uh, dependent on industry, obviously, uh, most businesses are probably seeing how well people have reacted to working from home. And that some will even say they've been more productive at home because there's a bit more work life balance. Um, personally, in recruitment, it was a nightmare working from home. <laughs> um, you rely off you, you know you rely off your face to face, the team engaging. Um, but I, on the tech side, I, a lot of higher managers I spoke to prefer the teams working from home, and there was a lot more productive. I guess for from your perspective, it sounds like Sky had done it very very well. Um, If there is anyone listening who does find it hard to be motivated themselves or as a leader finding it very hard to motivate their teams, what key piece of advice would you do to help those people?
1: I I think it comes down to communication Uh, and I've seen quite a few posts on LinkedIn recently about the transition to remote working and there was a really interesting uh, point around, uh, around over communicating. Now, we are working remotely and this is a different world. Before, if I wanted to find something out, I would walk across the office and ask somebody, I'd tap them on the shoulder. Or I would listen to the team around me, I would listen to the teams chatter and the team speak, and I would get information via osmosis. But that doesn't happen anymore. We are effectively working from home looking at a small screen and that is our view into collaborating with other people now. It's a very different world and the way that we interpret that, the way that we engage with that is very different. It's sometimes far more taxing to be staring down a webcam and looking at that other person at the other end of that webcam as we're doing now. (laughs) And it's, It's a very different world and it takes a different level of concentration yeah. I think going back to the point of over-communicating, it's really important that when we do communicate, uh, we communicate an organization's strategy or direction, we, we make that communication as meaningful as possible. We make the signal that we're trying to send as clear as possible because one thing you can do is you can communicate, 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 but you can then over-communicate. And yeah. because you are working remotely, you don't have that, uh, that brain trust that group of people around you that can help you to make sense of those messages filter out the no- yeah. uh, filter out the noise and get to the signal so what i would say to organizations that, that are going through this this transition is to be really cognizant of the message that you put across make sure that you've got a very clear signal and then yeah. help people to put that into context
0: or you could just have what i've just had i'm in an office and uh, someone's what and asked me if what did you drink and i'm now stood on zoom going no
1: That's- I wonder what you were doing there. <laughs>
0: um, but yeah, I guess um, yeah, Zoom's in a world of its own, isn't it? Um, a lot of people have now said, rather than face-to-face meetings, it's just been replaced by Zoom. But the power of remote working actually gives them the power to say no and not turn up. <laughs> uh, whereas face-to-face meetings, you kind of you can't kind of can't say no because some people, yeah. most people, don't feel comfortable saying no to your face. <laughs> ultimately, yeah. I guess. Is there any specific tools or a specific framework that you would recommend to enable Teams to communicate effectively because ultimately like you said there, you can't go up to someone, tap them on the shoulder, or in my case, one time I actually threw a highlighter at someone because they had the earphones. Oh dear. <laughs> I'm not a violent person, but I asked five times. Um but um, someone actually said like um to me, well I can't just go to someone at, at the water cooler and say, what do you think of this when I'm struggling to get my ideas across. So how, how would you enable effective communication? Like, What do you define as effective communication?
1: I think effective communication is that two-way feedback loop. So it's yeah. listening to what somebody's saying, it's reading the non-verbal cues, and then it's making sure that even though you've communicated something, that message has landed and then been understood in the way that you expect it to. And when you're looking down the barrel of a webcam, that's a lot more difficult uh, because you, you're still waiting on cues that are no longer there. You've gone from being a 3D person to a, a two-dimensional person. And that's really challenging. And I think as, a, as an agile coach, as somebody that works with teams, it's really important that, you, that you're cognizant of that. And you put things in place to mitigate that loss of fidelity yeah. that you've received. And that might mean at the beginning of a meeting, just having a decompression session, just, have, just talking a bit of nonsense with your team members just to build that, build that rapport back, build yeah. that bridge and, uh, just kind of like, just kind of like shake the energy out in a way. And what that enables teams to do is it enables them to build that rapport back before they then go back into that meeting. Because yeah. what I found is that sometimes I will hop from meeting to meeting and I will just walk out of one zoom call and into another and I will go in cold. Whereas yeah. in the previous world, what would happen is I would catch somebody in the corridor, And we would have a chat on the way there. We'd start to exchange a bit of information. We'd start to rebuild that relationship, which is an ongoing process. But then what would happen is we'd go into the meeting and we'd have the meeting and then we'd wind down again. You don't tend to have that in this new world. So one of the things that I spend a lot of time doing is just making sure that we've got the right things in place. When we are incepting a piece of work, let's say we're breaking out a a very large piece of work, we have some kind of team building at the beginning of that. We have a warm up. bit like going to the gym and we also have a bit of a warm down as well just to understand what's going to happen next so I think that comes back to the point about being really specific about what you communicate but make sure that communication is meaningful yeah I think I think another thing that's really important is leaving time for the social engagement too so the team, that, the team that I work with at Sky Betting and Gaming, uh, in the morning we'll have a, our morning stand-up, we'll get together, we'll talk about the work that needs to be done. But then in the afternoon we'll also have, to have an afternoon stand-up. Now that is not about talking about work, that is about being a contact point to talk to each other, understand how each other's day's been, build empathy back up, build that relationship and talk about, let's say, what we had for lunch. What kind of sandwich did we have? But then more importantly, exactly, it's it's daft things like that. But then once we've got that information, then we can then say, okay, and then what did you learn? Because the things that we deliver are very tangible, but the things that we learn along the way are often things that we don't talk about, we don't make them visible. So in an afternoon, we'll talk about not just what we've had on our sandwiches, but we'll also talk about, okay, this is the thing that I've learned today as an individual, and I'm going to reintroduce this back into the team. In the previous world, we would have done that by just shouting across the desk to it, to somebody else and somebody could see that learning taking place. By having that catch-up in the afternoon, it, em- it kind of like re-embeds that rapport building, that relationship building, and I think it builds a much stronger team and it helps towards that concept of psychological safety, which is a foundation of a- being a high-performing team.
0: Yeah, and I think, I think just while we're on this topic, I think it's also important to, you know... F- <laughs> Feel comfortable like talking on Zoom. Um, to be fair, that's something I, I personally I've talked to quite naturally just because I've always felt awkward on on phones because I can't see a person. Whereas on Zoom, I can actually see who I'm talking to, and I feel like that that creates more rapport for me in itself. Um, and I guess from in you know in recruitment, we're always on the phone. We're calling candidates, clients, um, you know, you know, you name it. So it's probably in a better way because now we're on more teens and seeing people face to face but i think one thing i've noticed is especially from working from home is don't don't feel awkward if your dog runs in make a joke of it or you know if something's going on in the background you know i think sometimes um uh, i've noticed uh, just from when we did it ourselves or from speaking to clients people are worried to let the personality shine through on zoom because you're still working so there needs to be an element of professionalism is what they say but ultimately you've just got to make light of a really niche situation we're finding ourselves in and um, I think one time I was actually doing one of my very first webinars and you could hear my dad singing Spice Girls in the shower next door <laughs> to me. and I'll just be like I can either just continue and ignore it or I can just say Do you know what this is what's happening <laughs> is anyone else having anything uh, embarrassing so that will just project a little bit of humor and can also bring a little bit of social interaction and breaking up a difficult meeting or um make them less static i suppose um but that leads swiftly nicely on because one of the questions that we've we have had is um because it's not just about ways of working uh, turning teams into high performing it's also a culture side it's a mindset so have you had any examples of where turning teams around has been more focused on the culture side if so how did you do it
1: uh i think i think culture's an interesting one uh, and there's there's a really good definition of culture and it. it's it's the uh, it's the behaviors and the acts of a team and how that team behaves and performs and one of the things that i think works really well in in building this high performing team and this high performing culture is allowing a team to be itself and I think you, what you've said there is absolutely spot on. When you when you come to work, do you bring a uh, a facade to work? Do you bring a, a version of yourself? Or do you bring your whole self to work? And I think depending on where that team is in terms of its openness and its uh, where it is in terms of psychological safety, some people will be not afraid to bring their whole self to work. And that's a really important thing because we are more than kind of what you see on a day-to-day in the office. What zoom has done and what this 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 situation has done is it's kind of exposed that in my opinion it's given us these 2d snapshots of people on a screen but you end up learning more and more about that person than ever before because you are live in somebody's living room whether you like whether you like it or not and i think all of those things that hold teams together, their rules, their values, and their behaviors, those things become even more important when you're working remotely because you're no longer constantly reinforcing them yeah. when you're in the office. And so when I'm when I'm working with teams on site, I should say, there's a constant reflection of are we living up to the rules and values that we've set ourselves, not the ones that have been imposed upon us, but the rules and values that the team is arrived at about what it thinks or how it thinks it should behave and what it thinks makes a great product or a service now those rules those values those behaviors all come together to form the culture of that team and it becomes quite potent it's a bit it's a really good cocktail for building high-performing products not just teams because if you've got a really tight culture it holds that team together it lets them weather difficult times and it lets them really perform and outperform some other teams in some cases and that culture is really specific to that team. It's an echo of the team. And there's nothing wrong with each team, each squad, whatever you want to call them, having their own subculture because it's more meaningful to them. It's something that they can own. And it gets, it gets under your skin. It's a really positive thing. But when you go to working remotely, that constant reinforcement starts to disappear. You're no longer questioning, are we living up to our values? Are we breaking our rules in terms of how we build products? And so it's really important that when we do have uh, calls, like on Zoom now, or maybe we go to an inception session, we start to break out work, or we just catch up and have a couple of of kind of like chats in the afternoon and talk about what we've had to eat. There is an element of reinforcing that culture and holding us together. That's really, really important.
0: Yeah, and it's different because you can't just plug in the same model used previously either so you know something that's worked for you might not work in a different business from a culture i guess it's all dependent on your team and if that variety of personalities isn't it to to bring them through And, and like you said how open and transparent your teams are and um you know whether you're realistic or you just have an idea of what you want your team to look like um so the next part of it, we've we've had a, um, a situation that someone is currently in at the moment, and just wanted to ask your advice on it. So um, they've gone from a team of four developers in, in a particular area to ten to ten scrum teams really fast. So in a very fast paced growth environment, how do you recommend the dilution of knowledge is managed and how do you manage cross team collaboration when the team are all focused on one particular domain?
1: Interesting one. Uh, So I think think a really good starting point is to look at something like domain driven design uh, for the way that you architect and you construct your teams. Uh, I think for, for me, what I would be looking at is I would looking I would be looking at that domain that you all these teams are working in, and looking for the the smaller domains, the smaller bound, the smaller context, the smaller bounded context that live within there. I would be looking at the number of people that can live within those domains, and those contexts, uh, and working out what is the saturation point. How many people and how many engineers can you put into those domains before they become saturated and people start to trip over each other? and the best way to do that is just trial and error move a couple of people around obviously ask their consent and that's the, that's the, the first part of being a self-organizing team uh, but moving people and just finding what that uh, what that high watermark is for number of people in those areas i think once you've got that and you've found uh, and you've found a structure that is based around the domains that you are looking after in in your organization I would then start to look at the different interactions between those domains and those different bounded contexts. Are there different contracts? Are there different dependencies that exist? Are there cross-dependencies that exist? And then look at finding a way to cut those dependencies. Now, that might mean that one team has to take on uh, the work of another team that had historically looked after it. Or it may well be that you've got a shared context between two teams and one of that team has to take it on the chin and and take ownership of it. But ultimately, what that does is that enables you to start to cut the number of dependencies. The number of dependencies that then remain between those teams are far smaller. They're easier to manage, easier to maintain. And that that much simpler web of dependencies enables us to reduce our wait times. So when we're trying to produce a product and it requires multiple, uh, multiple pieces of work across those different teams... Then, by reducing those numbers of dependencies, we can go faster. We can reduce the wait times. We can uh, reduce the amount of time that things spend in queues waiting for other teams to look at them. And teams can then start to take more ownership. They can build more empathy towards their users. They can have a different and a much deeper understanding of user needs in the area that they're supporting. And I think that would be my my kind of like key takeaway there. It would be to start with your domains, fill your domains up with people work out what the saturation point is, and then start trading things between them just to cut your dependencies. Now, that on the surface will bring benefits, but it will also bring costs as well. It may result in duplication of effort, but the organization uh, that that the, uh, the person that's asked the question operates within will probably have a position on how it sees the economics of what it does. Does it care more about lead time and time to market? or does it care more about uh, economies of scale does it want to do something once but do it well and are they happy to then extend the delivery time scale because of the you know the infra dependencies that comes from that so i think it it would firstly be start with small teams base them around domains try to focus on feature based teams or domain specific teams avoid component teams if you can Uh, because then you just create a web of dependencies in my experience, and uh, then just try it out and don't be afraid after maybe about six to eight weeks to realize that you've actually made a mistake and to change that configuration. But what I would say is allow those teams to go through that forming, storming, norming, performing cycle, allow them to get together, allow them to bed in, and allow them to build those relationships. But just if you are going to make changes, make little changes, but not too often.
0: Yeah, that's it, isn't it? It's not making everything all at once. It's small incremental changes where every... We always say uh, here at Maxwell Bond is every day make that 1% improvement. So it could be you do one extra on a KPI. It could be you might you know recruitment can be a very emotional roller coaster type role which i can imagine when in similar similar to yourself where you've got product releases the stress you might feel the week before um you know it's every single time you come up how can you maybe get quicker at overcoming that stress so that definitely that one percent improvement every single time you're on your way to a massive journey um in itself and you can just it's kind of definitely that agile way of working, isn't it? You try something, it doesn't work, great. You go back, try something different until it works before you move forward. Um, so another scenario that's been put to was more actually product related. Um, so for this person, their product function sits outside of the management structure. So things being not delivered on time is often seen as more of a development issue. However, most of the time, It tends to be because they don't have the requirement elaborated. What's your experience with dealing with this and how would you overcome it? Uh,
1: I I think this comes down to uh, the ownership within the team. I think that really good delivery teams uh, are supported by brilliant product owners and brilliant product managers. And the best teams that I've worked with, the highest performing teams, have always had a dedicated, talented product or product manager or product owner that is empowered to be able to make those decisions without that empowerment without that knowledge of the domain and that relevancy uh, then your chances of success in what you're doing start to deplete massively so i think it comes down to having that relationship and having that whole relationship with that team so you may have product that sits outside of technology you may there may be some kind of separation between those things but ultimately as an organization you are measured by the impact that you have, not the divisions that you've got. And if you've got different PNLs within those different disciplines and different metrics and measures within that, that's great. But ultimately, they start to pull and detract from the ultimate goal, which is to have a business impact, to move a dial somewhere. And everybody should be on that journey and everybody should be invested in that. I think what I would say is the really, I I would say that probably the, the thing that's changed the way that I think about work and how teams think about work is the Kneffen model by Dave Snowden uh, about understanding that the work that we do these days is not always simple. It's, we're working in a complex and volatile world uh, and some things are well known, some things are very simple. Other things are slightly more complicated they've got some knowns but the interconnections and cause and effect are not well understood and need to be understood better and then you've got areas that are more complex that you just don't know the terrain you know how big something is but you just don't know what's on on that map uh, and then I think the final the final kind of like permutation of that is something that is chaotic something that you you can you can only firefight. For me, I think if, if you're looking at things from a product space and taking a concept and turn it into, into reality and turn it into a real product, the, the really important thing is to be cognizant of where you are and how much you understand the domain. How much do you understand that domain and the interactions within it? And how much do you understand that technology and how those things come together? And not to overestimate your understanding. Because we live in a far more complex world these days with lots of different interactions that ultimately have an effect, but sometimes those things are not seen. They're small, they're small, tiny signals. If you if you if we're having challenges of taking those ideas and turning them into 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 actual software working products uh, for customers, I would say. Get really close together, starting, setting work all at the same time, all in the same room. Don't throw anything over a wall to another team. Get that single team working together. Get that product owner baked into the team and have those conversations. Because when things start to go wrong, you've got that product owner there who can listen to the chatter and the team chat. And they can go, actually, there's a problem here and I need to make a decision. The further that product owner or product manager is away from that team, the slower that feedback loop is going to be and the stale of those decisions are going to become. What I would say is that when we're incepting work, when we're taking that idea and breaking it out, just be cognizant of the things that you know for certain and the things that you don't. Some things will be obvious, known patterns that have got a low amount of risk, whereas other things will be slightly more complicated and then more complex. Things could inflate really, really quickly because we don't understand them. I would say don't make a commitment around highly complex work take some time out buy some time sit down and look at something and do a time box maybe say for a week we're going to study this area and really drill into it take something that's complex and make it complicated yeah. and then once we've done that dive in again until we understand it and then together we've got that collective understanding so when we do make a forecast we've got a high degree of confidence to avoid a situation where we're constantly de- disappointing the folks from product because we're not delivering and the people that are actually delivering work feel really bad because they are disappointing the folks from products and that's because they don't fully understand the domain
0: yeah and uh it, just going on to understanding the domain it's sort of like um i don't know if you've seen this during your career but uh something i'm noticing definitely there's a lot of confusion with delivery roles like what is appropriate you know is it a product owner do you need a product manager do you need a project manager do you need a hybrid ba should you put all three roles into one person and create a superhuman? Um, And funnily enough, product teams are still growing. There's still a new concept to a lot of businesses. Some businesses don't have product people um, at all, but yet they create products. They just use project managers and BAs. Um, so I guess for anyone who's listening who might think oh that's actually us and our team uh, and and my business what would your advice be to actually to bring all this together and make it work in that harmonious way on paper it should work (laughs) but in real in real times it just doesn't because there's so much confusion
1: i think i don't think there's a i don't think there's a simple answer to this um i'm afraid there isn't one uh but another the thing,
0: webinar on this if you want <laughs> <laughs> i might
1: come back you never know uh i i think that i think that an organization needs to come to terms with what its constraints are yeah does it, does it prize uh does it prize continuous investment in its technology or does it want to run its technology and its assets as a capital asset? So run it into the ground, squeeze out as much time and money out of it as possible. And that is totally fine for, for some organisations. And that is, a very, that is a very civil engineering way of looking at something. We build a building and then we try to get as much of that value out of it as possible to maximise our return on investment. Yeah. The but, but buildings are just empty shells. They need renovating every so often but they don't need to be constantly updated. If you look at the way that technology works, it behaves in a fundamentally different way. Yes, we have to design it. Yes, we have to construct it, but we have to constantly nurture it. It's an investment. It's not a capital asset. It's more of a revenue-based asset. And if we try to sweat a technology asset for as long as possible, then the value of it starts to decline. People start to use workarounds, use alternatives. They'll go somewhere else and pick up another product from another supplier. And people can vote pretty easily with the feet in the virtual world. Now, how does that affect how we think about projects and product? Well, if we think about IT projects, if we think about tech and digital projects, as soon as we've created something and it's in the hands of our customers, we can either sense and respond to that feedback or we can ignore it. If we choose to ignore it, the value of that product in the eyes of that customer starts to deplete pretty quickly through competition and through the customer's needs changing as as that customer then looks at that then they can go somewhere else and that's a pretty powerful thing now in a project-based world, we'd spin up another project to add more value to it. But that requires a big business case. That requires a big project plan. It requires, uh, it requires staffing that it mo- means moving people around in an organization and change control. Uh, and some people will fear the concept of change control and, and what, it in- what it involves, which is usually a bill. Uh, <laughs> but I think that is very much a project way of looking at things. I think really high-performing organizations and high-performing teams look at the pro- uh, look at the, the things that are supporting their business and they take a product view of it. They know that that product in order to remain value uh, in order to remain valuable, I should say, need to be invested in on an ongoing basis, and so you have to have a standing team. You have to have either a wave or a trickle of work coming through that constantly maintains the value of that product either maintaining that value at a certain level so people don't go elsewhere or actually increasing the value of that product so really good digital products i should say they don't just deliver their immediate value but they appreciate in value over time whereas a project management a program management almost like a temporary uh, structure way of looking at things often sees that technology and digital products depreciating value over time because we're trying to sweat them like a physical asset the reality is they're not a physical asset and really good teams are able to spot this and realize that if they make this small ongoing investment actually it's a force multiplier it helps their business succeed it helps everything else that flows from that and it keeps customers there it keeps people coming back to using their product
0: yeah um and i guess two final questions to sort of finish uh, the session the episode today um, again two scenario based for two different types of businesses so the first one um, the the person would like to hear more about how you plan and give team space to jog and how you sell that to a business because they've put 50 development days isn't actually 50 days elapsed and in this business they're historically waterfall background so they really struggle with that what would your advice be
1: my my advice would be uh to if you if you come from a program management and a project management background i would say that all of the all of the good practice and better practice that lives within that like contingency should be exercised but exercised really carefully Uh, i think if you're if you're in the business of delivering a product to other people uh, and two other clients, uh, and you, you multi, you're managing multiple clients, it's really important that you as that business recognize the importance to have that wind down from one thing to another, not just the contingency to say that this thing may go over by X, Y, and Z, but to have that space or in between delivering one thing and, a, and another. From a, from a project, from, from a program and a delivery perspective, it gives you a bit of breathing space. It's not the same thing as contingency. It's thought space. It enables you to replan, it enables you to retool, it enables you to have that thought space. And arguing for that is very, very difficult. Now, what I would say though, is that if you understand the value that that adds, it becomes easier to articulate it. And one of the things that I tend to spend a lot of time doing during retrospectives, once uh, once our teams have identified what things they would like to change, we, would all, we always put a hypothesis around it. And yeah. we say that if we do the following thing, then we expect the following thing to happen, and we will know this by what. And that becomes a almost a mini business case, a mini, mini business case to add a bit of extra padding between one thing and another, if it makes sense. And then if you can execute those hypotheses, you can execute those small improvements over time, they start to build up. And then you start to gain the confidence that actually taking a bit of time out, it might on paper look like we're not highly utilizing people. But actually what we're doing is we're actually improving the way that we're delivering for the next subsequent project, the next subsequent client and iteration. And it comes back to the example that you mentioned earlier about that one percent improvement it's that law of cumulative gains cumulative improvements and if you can just shave one percent off each time each time then ultimately it builds up and at the end of the year you're in a much different place from when you started
0: yeah so it's always looking long term rather than short term like how to do it very quickly it's how you can do it over a set period of time doing something different every, I don't know, timescale-wise, every month, every few weeks. Um, and, and yeah, so lastly, uh, the last question um, that we have time for um, wants to know, what's your approach to management structures and high-performance teams? They say that line managers are there for career progression and one-to-ones, not for day-to-day. What's your experience on this and does it impact teams?
1: Uh, so I think if I was if I was to turn the clock back, uh, I used to work with a really high performing team, and uh, I was embedded within the team and I was their, I was their scrum master, but I was also their line manager and that was a massive conflict of interest on paper. However, uh, I think that we had the right relationship where I could detach myself from my line management activities and treat the team as the team and be that coach be that uh, that trainer and be that mentor in the role of being a scrum master and discharge my, my duties as as the team expected me to. So I don't think in all cases, it's a conflict of interest. I think if you can manage that and you are conscious of it, conscious of the risks that are, that are involved, you might be able to get away with it. Yeah. I think from a software engineering perspective, having your line manager in the team is always a good thing because it's about having those open conversations whether that line manager is always looking over your shoulder or not that's a different question i mean people you know people come to work because they're passionate about their jobs we're motivated by autonomy mastery and purpose a lot of, especially within the software industry and people are there not to do a bad job they're there to do a good job and i think team leads tech leads really good ones are able to trust their teams to deliver what's needed not get in their way but when they ask for it provide that mentoring whether that's direct mentor mentoring between the team lead and the individual the tech lead and the individual or it may well be signposting them somewhere else because i know a lot of what i uh, what i've done before in the past is i've looked after groups of business analysts and uh, i used to be a business analyst but i wouldn't call myself a business analyst anymore but when i have looked after business analysts uh Uh, through through line management duties it's always been an opportunity for me to signpost them to the person that I see as being really great in this area so don't talk to me about it talk to somebody else about it but my main job is to facilitate that conversation and just make sure it happens so to create the environment for those opportunities yeah I think if if I was to kind of look at what makes a good team structure uh, I would say that treat teams as their as and this sounds uh, overly grandiose in some cases but treat teams as their own little companies i mean yeah. if you if you've got a team that's really uh, close to its domain it lives within a bounded context it owns that domain that product from cradle to grave and that service then that gives that team a huge opportunity to shape that product and get close to the customer one way to look at it is that your product owner is your ceo of that team yeah, and then your your Scrum Master, Agile Delivery Lead, uh, insert you know latest uh, in vogue uh, job title for for that kind of role. <laughs> uh, that person is your almost your COO, so helping with operations and turning that dream into a reality. I think that's a really good way to look at teams, but that does come with with, with its challenges, and that's where I think your cross-cutting concepts like guilds and uh, chapters help to build out. Uh, professions disciplines and to avoid what can be sometimes quite insular looking uh, self-optimizing cultures because the opportunity to own something they will optimize as much as humanly possible but sometimes yeah. that means that you end up taking your eye off the ball, which is actually there's a bigger prize. And within a company, we don't just operate multiple P&Ls. We all, all you know, we, we run one PNL and everybody needs to contribute towards that. So it's a tightrope walk. There's no right or wrong answer to that. But I think the key thing there is having that sense of ownership. Treat your product owner and your product manager as your CEO treat your uh delivery lead or your agile coach or scrum master as your COO or maybe your tech lead and then give that power to that team but just be cognizant of the area around it
0: yeah no what a great way to finish it and <laughs> um, from that side but unfortunately that is all we have time for today simply because Tom's probably got to go off to another <laughs> talk or round table um, and actually be with your teams (laughs) absolutely Uh, uh, from that side but uh, yeah obviously if anyone has any questions or anything for Tom on the back of today um, either message myself or message Tom on on LinkedIn, he's also a big Twitter fan so feel free to tweet him as well Um, but yeah I'm sure if we get enough interest I'm sure Tom would love to come back and do another one
1: (laughs) yeah a bit for that
0: Um, from that side but but yeah it's fantastic to speak today again and thank you so much for taking time out of your busy hectic schedule to speak to me and um and yeah fingers crossed uh, we get some more interest and some more great questions and you never know you might be episode 10
1: (laughs) you never know well (laughs) well thank you for the invite back ryan it's been uh, it's been a real pleasure really enjoyed it
0: not a problem i've loved it all right then well um thanks tom and thanks everyone for listening and uh, yeah if you want any webinars or trusted tech talks or any more podcasts or anything like that just drop us a message and i'm sure we can put something in place for you all well um i think that's it i think that's it <laughs> all right then well thanks tom and um if anything else comes up i will give you a shout great bye, Brilliant. bye.